In the shadows of our psyche lives a creature. Its form is dark, its features obscure, its expressions impenetrable. And so we're left projecting onto it our own fears and insecurities, and other less savory tendencies. For most, the crow has become more myth than fact, an ill omen, a guttural scold in the background to mark a dark turn in a movie we're watching. In this profile, we'll strip away the artifice and discover the fascinating world of one of our most common urban animals, the American crow. This is the Single Acorn Podcast. But first, a word from our sponsor. You can't show up to Tavern on the Green in last year's coat, and you wouldn't dare enter the Ritz with a dirty collar. It can be difficult to keep up on all the latest trends, but we're here to be your guide dogs and help you navigate the world of purse dog fashion. You might not be able to choose what purse your owner totes you around in, but you can pee on an out-of-date sweater or chew on a collar that doesn't have any diamonds on it. With purse dog accessories, we'll make sure you're the alpha in any room you're in. Well, hey there, fellow naturalists. I'm Professor Iwigi. I am a naturalist and educator with Crow's Path, and I am here with Glenn Etter. And uh, Glenn Etter goes by the pseudonym Uncle Corvus, and he is here representing <laughs> Uncle Corvus's Traveling Plague Doctor Service. That's right. This is my Uncle Corvus voice, Teague. Hi, nice to see you, by the way. <laughs> hear you. That's great. I see you're, you're wearing your uh, Plague Doctor mask. I am. Uh, the beak, you know, is filled with perfume. Did you know that? <laughs> I had. I don't I had smell heard. the corpses as bad. The corpse smell is awful, god awful. One of the many, uh, I would say, perils of my profession as a plague doctor. I'm going to say for a lot of you listeners out there, if you're thinking of going into plague doctor, just read up on it beforehand because you're around a lot of sick people. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And if you're not very good, you're also around a lot of dead people. Yeah, a lot of dead people in my case. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't really know much about medicine. I really got into it for the costume. I kind of, I thought it was, I thought it looked cool. Yeah. <laughs> didn't know what you were getting into. Basically, that's, I would say that's my, my lesson is don't just do a job. Don't commit your entire life to a job just because you think the costume looks cool. <laughs> so there's a lesson. Duly noted. Into it. But it is, it is, you know, in this pandemic, it's been useful to bring out my costume and stroll around from door to door, knocking, seeing if anyone needs any help. What's your segue into conversation after they open the door? <laughs> I say, hello, have you been visited by the plague? <laughs> I'm your friendly neighborhood plague doctor. And then they almost invariably shut the door. Yeah, I'm sure. Well, at least you're wearing a mask. Yeah, and that's true. I am masked up and then I leave a calling card. I, I mean, I do think being a plague doctor back in the day of like the Black Plague was a pretty high risk profession. Yeah. I don't know how they kept kept enough of them going. Well, I think, there, you know, the the standards for who could be a doctor were <laughs> considerably <laughs> lower than they are today. So it was probably you just came from nobility and you yeah. residency. Yeah. It's got thrown into the costume and you move bodies around. Yeah. Yeah. But it is nice. It is nice to feel the power of the, of the, the Corvid costume. Yeah. I felt trickier. I felt kind of, I don't know. My senses were heightened. Yeah. Um, there's this this great quote that says, uh, if men had wings and bore black feathers, few of them would be clever enough to be crows. And I was just <laughs> thinking about that as you were, you were talking. Yeah, so this week what we're talking about is crows in their infinite wisdom. And this is our first species profile that we're doing that's part of our series on urban wildlife. And there are tons and tons of stories about 
you know, crows or not even necessarily specific stories, but just this general perception that crows are this phenomenally brilliant, intelligent bird that has figured out how to sort of live in the shadows of humans uh, and in living in our shadow have often eclipsed us, at least in terms of our <laughs> perception of their intelligence and our perception of our own intelligence. So great to have your your expertise here, Uncle Corvus. Uh, <laughs> Thank you. I think I think for all of these animals we'll be profiling, I'll be dressing up at them as them for a week or two before we talk about them. Perfect. It's totally the wrong medium, but uh, yeah, I am I'm very impressed that you came in full uh, regalia. <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry our listeners can't see, but maybe they can hear a little bit. Yeah, uh, my, when my feathers rustle. Yeah. So I have been, uh, you know, I I started Crow's Path and I've the idea of the crow as sort of this symbolic figure has been really important for me in, in my life. Uh, and, you know, it's, the crow is disproportionately represented in mythologies around the world. They're, you know, probably around 50 or so different species in the genus Corvus. And wherever they're found on every continent, except for Antarctica, they are the sort of top dog for intelligence because they're so intelligent and often around people. They're just there's a really strong mythological connection to crows. But I uh, my first interactions with crows that were sort of beyond the mythological realm where we had my dad was a veterinarian and we always had animals that we were rehabbing. Uh, this one time we got these two desert tortoises that we were rehabbing. Uh, <laughs> my plan was to name them after the chipmunks, so Alvin, Simon, and Theodore. <laughs> they well, they look a lot like chipmunks, right? As, desert tortoise, sort of. Uh, Have very similar behavior. Charismatic noses. And uh, my sister, you know, being smarter than I was, uh, was like, Teague, we only have two tortoises and they're three chipmunks and one of them's a girl. So (laughs) I named mine Alvin and then she named hers Kim. So we had Alvin and Kim and Alvin, the tortoise had this sort of like over like really pronounced overbite sort of hooked beak on the front that it's like my costume right now if you notice yeah exactly a little bit like that yeah except he could barely open his mouth and uh so he was just really 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 horrible at eating and what we do is we take you know mixed vegetables sort of the frozen bags of mixed vegetables and we throw them out on our back patio and just leave it out there and then alvin would walk around and uh would pick up the food but he would always just be encrusted in carrots and uh, <laughs> little corn kernels and peas <laughs> and we also had a crow for a little while that we were rehabilitating and it was so cool to watch because the crow would just sit on alvin's back and alvin would walk around so the crow could be super lazy and uh wouldn't have to walk you know itself to pick up the food and as alvin was like picking up the food and trying to eat it he would just kind of mash his face into the <laughs> the vegetables <laughs> and then our cr- like, our crow would just like pick the scraps off of his face it was amazing good lord yeah so it was this sort of traveling buffet the royal treatment yeah. yeah like a royal litter i wonder if you could hire the, that crow to but you know there's some babies when my child was a baby he was a bit of a messy eater. <laughs> uh-huh. yeah i think a friendly crow i didn't think of it at the time yeah uncle corvus's <laughs> cleanup crows uncle corvus's cleanup might be better than a plague doctor gig yeah it might be a little maybe goggles just some parents might be worried about the pecking the eyes out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm sure that happens rarely. Yeah. They they do love eyeballs. Have you ever had eyeball? 
I had a friend who who has served eyeball eyeball soup when he was visiting visiting a family in India. Yeah, I've not had an eyeball that was big enough to just have the eyeball. Like I've eaten smaller animals that have still had eyeballs attached to them, <laughs> but I have not eaten uh, like in just a solely yeah just a fried eyeball. I okay. just I don't think I could. <laughs> I don't think I could. <laughs> ah, nice. <laughs> I the reason I want to start with the story about uh, Alvin and I actually we probably had a name for the crow i don't i don't remember what it was you know it's interesting with with animals you know non-mammalian animals they don't typically don't have a lot of facial muscles and so much of our social interactions are based around reading facial expressions and so with a crow that you know has very dark features the young will have blue rings around their eyes but the adults have pretty much just black eyes they have black feathers they don't have eyebrows that can go up and down and show expressions and then they don't have a mouth with muscles they just have a a rigid beak and so there's not a lot of charisma in the way that the animal is communicating other than uh, vocally And yet there's just something so charismatic about crows and just watching that crow problem solve how to be as lazy as possible. (laughs) It's just a noble goal. Many, many humans go after that same goal, I would say. Yeah, it was just so clear that it had such a, a strong personality. Yeah, I was captivated and hooked by the crow world by that now nameless uh, crow. <laughs> you got any good crow stories for us? Well, I was thinking, I was reading about crows in a, in a couple of, of books in preparation for the podcast. No, it's been a lifetime of study. You, you have truly had a lifetime of study, but I've encountered crows my whole life. But I was thinking about, you know, many of my encounters with crows have been around food, watching them sort of angling for people's food, sort of like seagulls. And I think maybe gulls and crows are a bit confused in my mind the different times that they've stolen my food and I've lumbered after them or left something alone <laughs> yeah and stolen by a crow or a gull. one thing I was reading about um that crows one of their negative you know one of the negative associations we have with crows is that they were often on battlefields and they were sort of they're sort of scavengers right a roadkill but that becomes alarming when it's human kill right on a battlefield yeah and that presumably some of the myths about crows and ravens that are you know they're kind of ill omens or something like Hitchcock's The Birds comes from this association with sort of death and scavenging, especially human remains. And I thought that was unfair, you know, crows are just trying to eat. So I thought maybe um, it would be nice if crows had a more positive association with food. So I came up with the idea that crow's feet, which again, you know, crow's feet are probably very nice feet, right? But we have this term crow's feet that are sort of wrinkles, a sign of age, again, death. Come on, give the crows some credit. Yeah. So I thought crow's feet should maybe be sort of like Swedish fish, like a little sweet sour <laughs> treat. And um, maybe we could sell them to the website. Yeah, that, that sounds like a, a, sort of, a great... Thank you, thank you. I, and I, since you're on board with this, I didn't know if you were going to be. I wrote a, little, a tiny jingle, sort of reimagining this sort of association with battle. So the idea would be if you've had sort of a bad day, you could have a crow's foot, which is, I think people do this with like shower patch kids, which if you think about it, I mean, eating children, is that really healthy? Wouldn't it be better to be honoring the foot of the crow than eating a small child Yeah. for your candy needs? Uh, yeah. Wait, so, so are these candied, are they literally candied crow's feet or are they? They're not literal feet. That would be, I think, okay, economically it's... not viable, but they're in the shape of feet, bird's foot. I think you can do that. Yeah. Um, 3D printing, maybe. I'm not sure. Yeah. Yeah, how we would 
we make I haven't worked out all the details, but the jingle is or is sort of a longer jingle. <laughs> what well, is a long story? Yeah. If you suffer a humbling retreat, or God forbid, an ignominious defeat, try crow's feet. That sour and spicy treat. It's better than milk from a celestial teat. And <laughs> I'm not sure about the celestial teat part. No, it's great. But it does bring up one of my favorite constellations, Corvus. You know the constellation Corvus? No. The crow or the raven. Yeah. It's up there. It's in the sky. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, eat crow is an expression, and eating crow meat, literally, not as just an expression, is taboo in so many different cultures. The I think it's the Lenape have this story uh the indigenous people in the delaware area of rainbow crow and it's uh this sort of trickster figure that winds up stealing uh fire to bring back to the rest of the animals that are caught in this sort of eternal winter and in the process of coming back you know with this stick on fire the uh, crow is getting soot all over feathers and breathing in the smoke and getting this sort of raspy voice before Rainbow Crow was beautifully feathered and also had this just incredible uh, singing voice. And then at the end, there's sort of like this punishment of becoming sort of this hideous outcast. Um, but then one of the big rewards was that uh, her meat would taste gross like smoke. And so humans wouldn't <laughs> hunt or eat her. <laughs> but there, I think there's because there's this connection between the crow diet, which they're absolute generalists. They'll eat essentially anything. Um, but one of the things that they do eat is uh, carrion and they are one of the earlier stages often for uh, carrion in terms of, you know, the animals that will arrive. And they'll go after the eyeballs, which are, uh, you know, tasty, easy. You don't have to, like, rip through the skin Again or anything. Again with the to... eyeballs, yeah. Yeah, and so often you'll find these corpses that, like, I found this dead deer or a neighbor told me about it, and so I went and looked, and it was a pretty recent, uh, recently killed deer. And his eyeballs had already been pecked out by crows. And then I put a game camera up on it and didn't get any more crows on it. And so they ate the eyeballs off of the deer and then left. But you can imagine if, you know, yeah, you have these battlefields and there's this, you know, flush of crows that come and are feasting on the eyes of your brethren, <laughs> that it would probably be, you know, pretty, pretty bad form to eat that bird that has been you know, feasting off of, yeah, your fallen comrades and kin. Yeah, maybe as a sort of twisted form of revenge. This is definitely reinforcing my idea that safety goggles, if you're having a, a crow clean up your child's, <laughs> your infant's mess. Yeah, um, messy eating. Yeah, go for the goggles. The eyeballs, too, too, too tempting. Definitely too tempting. So I thought what we could do is, you know, just sort of run through generally what a crow is and then um, some just fun facts. And as we're going, we'll kind of pay attention more or less to some of the features that make crows really excellent urban birds. And then at the end, we'll share like the major fact about crows. But yeah, so for taxonomy, it's maybe a little bit surprising to people. So they're in the perching bird or songbird order. And so if you go back to your middle school science class, King Philip came over for good soup, right? Uh, so kingdom, <laughs> phylum, class, order. So class avis, birds. And then order is passeriformis. Does it mention what kind of is... soup he got? Probably not. Uh, go I, ahead. Uh, yeah. Spaghetti soup, maybe for the alliteration. <laughs> Stone soup. Sweet soup. Soupy soup? Like sweet soup. Okay. So they're in passeriforms? Yeah. So Those they're the perching, uh, birds? perching birds or songbirds. 
you know, they don't have like a sweet song, but they definitely have a huge vocal repertoire over 250 different sounds that they can make. Yeah. And then for the family, so class, order, family, and family is Corvidae. So this includes rooks, jays, chuffs, crows, ravens, uh, a whole bunch of different common names for species that are in the Corvidae. And then the genus is Corvus. Jackdaws. Did Jackdaws yeah, make it in? Yep, Jackdaws. Thanks. And then genus is Corvus. And then uh, I think I mentioned earlier, there are 45, 50 different species in the genus. And then for uh, our species that we're going to talk about, often one of the unfortunate things, I think in pop culture and mythology and stuff is that often crow as a common name gets conflated with multiple species and so when you like read about crows people will jump back and forth and say like oh crows do this and they might be talking about jungle crows that live in japan or they might be talking about the american crow or the new caledonian crow yeah and what we're going to do is our you know conversation here we'll focus on corvus brachyrhynchos the american crow and Corvus just means crow, and then Brachyrhynchos. Brachy means short, and then rhynchos, uh, like a rhinoceros or rhinoplasty nose uh, or beak. So nice. they're short-nosed crows. They're the short-nosed crow. Yeah. And it's probably just relationship to ravens, which have a much, Corvus corax, which have a much larger beak than them. Yeah. So that's our taxonomy. Yeah, for general ecology, they, I mentioned earlier, they're just uh, total generalists, at least in terms of the food that they eat for habitat. They love humans because we have sort of knocked down all of the forests and created these open pastures and farmlands that have trees and small little patches of forest interspersed throughout them. And that's like primo crow habitat. And so their populations have yeah, just totally spiked over the last uh, three, four centuries as humans have, you know, laid waste to North American forests. Uh, yeah. And one window closes, another one opens. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I got a quiz for you. Quiz question here. Ah, bring it. So are there more American crows or are there more Canadian humans? <laughs> wow. I I mean, I've see, we see a lot of crows at the, roost, the sort of communal roosting time. And I don't see a lot of Canadians gathering these days because of um, well, you're not allowed across the border. Restrictions. Yeah. So just purely based on empirical evidence, I would say there's more crows than Canadians in my life these days. I'm gonna say I'm gonna go with crows. I don't know if that's true. I, I'm I'm guessing it's close, close to the same number. Yeah, you know, ninety percent of Canadians live within a hundred miles of the border. Really? Yeah, that's uh, like seventy-five percent of Brazilians live within fifty miles of the ocean. Oh, really? Wow. Slightly related fact. Yeah. Yeah. So the answer is there are more Canadians, but it's pretty darn close. It's 31 versus 35 million. And there was uh, so 31 million crows and 35 million Canadians. And it's a little bit unfortunate for the sake of sake of that, the answer to that quiz question that we're recording this in 2020, when if we had recorded this back in probably the early 90s or very early 2000s, the answer would have been American crows. So my next quest, uh, quiz question is, why are there fewer crows now than there were in, let's say, 1998? I believe it's the Canadian economic boom. They just started mating like rabbits. And it's like two or three times as many Canadians. No. Um, <laughs> a couple of warm winters. <laughs> <laughs> I I know that there um, 
are times in our country's history where the shooting and hunting of crows has been encouraged. I wonder if there were regulations eased up on shooting and hunting crows in the last couple of decades. And that's one reason we have less crows? I'm not sure. That's my guess. Yeah, I mean, so like the big, you know, the the answers that are, are usually pretty guaranteed to be part of the problem when you're talking about population to decline is that an invasive species was introduced that competes with that species, habitat loss or habitat fragmentation. Pesticide pollution type. Yeah, pesticide or pollution introduced in the environment or over-exploitation, like you mentioned. Uh, and then the other one is, I, you know, said an invasive species that competes, but uh, occasionally an invasive species of disease or a pathogen that shows up. Uh, and so it, for this, because habitat has you know, stayed relatively stable and crow populations in cities has increased that crows for habitat, they've actually benefited and and nothing has changed significantly for them over the last 20 years uh, for habitat wise. Um, Yeah. So it's not that. So yeah, it's actually the last one that I mentioned there, which is disease. So what disease was the big culprit? Well, I know there was, uh, wasn't there a few strains of avian flu that came in around that time, a couple of decades ago. So I did not know the crow, the American crow was so hit, hard hit by an avian flu, but maybe that's it. Maybe they had their own kind of pandemic. Yeah. So West Nile virus is the the West Nile virus big culprit, and yes, the population has you know been cut in half by West Nile virus since it was first introduced. And in are they more North immune America. now? Is it sort of like the ones that survived are more have immunity kind of thing? So they're no, they're still pretty. Their numbers when are we bouncing talked- back. When we talked about urban wildlife syndrome, one of the key components of that is that population densities in cities are higher. One of the big challenges that you have to deal with if you live in a city is uh, the increased transmission rates of diseases. And so mortality rates in cities are still really, really high for crows due to West Nile virus. Um, I found a crow a few years ago this is probably like 2011 or so the crow wasn't dead but i i brought it back to my house and uh it just seemed like really sickly and you could feel the uh, keel which is the breastbone on it really really prominently and on a healthy well-fed bird it was skeletal yeah uh yeah so on a healthy bird the keel is for muscle attachment and so the keel should be you should be able to feel it but not you know as this long bridge yeah and then if you have muscle atrophy because they're not eating enough and uh, or suffering from some disease then that keel can be really prominent and so that's what it was and it wound up yeah actually passing away within a few hours after finding it It really sad do you have any idea of how many like what percentage of crows survive their first year american crows i guess in a Maybe it's different in the city and countryside as according to one thing I was reading today, but I didn't get a sense of if it's like one in five or if it's half of them make it through their first year or. Yeah, I don't I don't know the exact number for almost every animal. The first year is the most brutal. brutal. And then if they can make it out of the nest, you know, I think squirrels wind up discovering like 50 to 70 percent of nests uh, in a forested area. And they're big time predators of eggs. And so if you can, you know, crows and ravens and their elk are really, really fiercely defensive of 
their nests and so it's a little bit less likely that a squirrel is going to predate upon them but there are other things that can get after their their nests yeah they also have like the juveniles usually yearlings won't uh won't mate and lay eggs they're they wind up being helpers they have these things called floater flocks that during the mating season you know they're a bunch of mated pairs and then those mated pairs sometimes they're oldest offspring will be helping them on the nest and raising their young and also defending the nest from potential predators but then there's also these so that helps floater with flocks. predation yeah 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 and these floater flocks are like these unmated pairs that are helping some of the crows in the territory nest but they're the floater flocks that are up to like 50 birds large are you know, it's kind of like a traveling mall for teenagers where they're all flirting with each other, but they're also <laughs> like, they have strength in numbers because the uh, crows are territorial against predator predators, but they're also territorial against other crows. And so if you're in a big flock of 50, you know, unmated pairs, you can move through a mated pairs territory. And as they're moving through an area, they can kind of stake out claims to new territories. But anyway, so they, they have some sort of built-in protection during those early years uh, against predators, but they're heavy mortality rates. I don't, I don't know specifically what it is. It's over fifty percent are lost in the first year, either as eggs or nestlings or fledglings. Yeah, pretty high mortality rates early on. Yeah, yeah. But then, if the, I mean, if you can survive your, they because crows are so intelligent, um, they, you know, like humans, if you're intelligent basically what i mean there are a bunch of different ways of defining intelligence but the way that i'm talking about it here is like your capacity to learn information and incorporate that learning into how you manipulate and engage your environment if you're going to be intelligent it takes a long time to accumulate experience to take advantage of that intelligence and so you know crows if they can make it through that first year of learning of like playing games and not really having to worry about foraging for food because they have all these helpers tending to them. If you can make it through that first year, you've accumulated a bunch of experience. You haven't really had to waste your time on foraging for food for yourself because you've been fed. And then you can take all of that learning and in subsequent years, put that to good use. And so if they make it past their first year, then I think that mortality goes down seven or eight. Yeah, it goes down dramatically in that second year. Yeah. You know, I, I have the feeling... That's not the case with the plague doctors dressed as crows. I think a lot of them didn't make it through their first year, but the experience didn't really help them that much the second year either. So yeah, yeah, it's it's Crows cool away. if you look at um like life history charts of you know success or like mortality rates in different species. Often, what it is is mortality rates start really, really, really high, like close to 70 to 90 percent of individuals will die in that first year and then it usually drops significantly um and then you know it's sort of like a u and then as the animal reaches its maximum lifespan then they start to die significantly faster so if you look at humans there's you know higher depending on the country you're in but higher mortality rates for babies and then once you get into like middle age uh then you're pretty good and then around 60 to 80 the mortality rate starts to creep up again but there's some species that are uh, like there's sexual dimorphism between the death rates and so 
you know, there might be increased mortality for females once they start to, uh, to breed because they're increased energetic demands. But for males, like with uh, elephant seals, when males start, they have high mortality rates as uh, infants, and then they get to a size range where they're no longer prey, and then they're pretty good. But then once they start entering the battlefield to breed, the then their mortality goes. rates go yeah. way up again. Yeah. But <laughs> not so much with crows. Yeah. Do crows have American crows? I mean, they seem so variable and classic in their behavior. Um, do they have standard um, kind of breeding display type behavior or breeding attracting a mate type behavior? Or is that very, that sort of learned and differ from place to place? They have, you know, they have a bunch of different vocalizations. They have uh, courtship behavior that is, I don't know if capitulation is quite the right word, but they can uh, uh, apologize to each other. So if they get in a fight <laughs> over food, then afterwards, one individual might go up to the other and, you know, sort of nudge up against it and kind of like preen it and stuff like that uh, but there are displays that that they'll do that are affectionate displays not necessarily apologizing displays there are also sort of flight displays that they'll do so one of the things you'll see often in the crow roost in the winter which we'll talk about uh, at the end they will do these really cool acrobatic flight displays and juveniles will do this they're, as they're flying they'll do these barrel rolls and they'll sort of like either fly upside down then right themselves or they'll do like a sort of full barrel roll a 360. yeah and it's amazing to watch and mm. super acrobatic and they're playing around and chasing each other and and doing that and it winds up helping because that's one of their main predator evasion moves if there's you know a, a predatory hawk that's chasing after them they'll also do those flight displays as part of the courtship there's uh you know i with their intelligence I try and talk about it in a way that's distinct from human intelligence because it's, I think, you know, it's helpful. It's helpful to anthropomorphize them a little bit so that you can connect to them on an emotional level and like, yeah, get into the crow mind. But but maybe not too much. Maybe but. not too much because <laughs> they're definitely weird. Uh, so there's this researcher, Kaylee Swift, and she is part of this uh, like network of crow researchers out of University of Washington, I think. Um, she's since, you know, gotten her PhD and moved on. But uh, she has sort of gotten her notoriety around crow funerals. There are all these anecdotes that hadn't really been researched. And she started researching them where, uh, you know, the anecdotes were if there's a dead crow that was on the ground, people would notice crows all flying into this area and then having this sort of mournful behavior where they would stand sort of very somber and silent. Silent at attention. Yeah. Yeah. And then they would be there for five or ten minutes and then they would fly off. No barrel rolling. Yeah. But would she... Silently, right? Yeah. Often. Yeah. It was all all like, you know, they're so raucous all the time, but they would just be very, very silent. And then... She has some recordings that we'll link to in the the show notes of crows having sex on corpses. So this was around, you know, I was thinking of this because of the uh, the courtship behavior. That's a good one, yeah. <laughs> it's sometimes all it takes is a dead corpse. Not suitable for human funerals. I'm just gonna for it just make that absolutely clear to our Definitely listeners. Definitely not. Don't do don't follow. Don't the do as the crows do. One. Right. Okay. Well, Sorry, you. It yeah. sounded like you were about to say something incredibly inappropriate <laughs> well i would often do a barrel roll as a courtship thing okay great 
I would see a, a, someone I liked and I would fall on the ground and just sort of roll around, <laughs> hopefully yeah. downhill in an impressive fashion. <laughs> yeah. But I didn't look for a corpse to, <laughs> to, as a perch to woo. Yeah, my, rolling down a hill probably works a lot better for courtship for elementary school kids than, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> my friends and I, that was our main courtship technique. We would fall down. We thought, somehow thought that would impress yeah. people. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it made them look at us. It's the first step, right? Yeah. No publicity was bad publicity. No, definitely not. Although I'm going to say having sex on a corpse would be bad publicity. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, definitely. For a human. Yeah. For a human. Yeah. No you'd be very unpopular in most circles, but if you found that one circle, you'd be king. <laughs> <laughs> that circle is probably out there and they may be clicking on the show notes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I think with with crows and whatever form of intelligence they they have, uh, you know, a lot of it seems really opaque. Like what is actually going on inside the mind of the crow? Research in the last probably like twenty years or less has started to try and come to terms with you know crow intelligence and figuring out exactly what it is. It's such a compelling topic because again, it feels so human. So you know, humans obviously we mourn the dead we have you know elaborate ceremony and ritual surrounding how to how to grieve and how to celebrate and honor the dead and then to make immortal our identity after we're gone uh, and so you know we see the this funeral type behavior uh it's different like you know our common ancestors with crows did not have funerals so we have separately evolved this behavior that has some sort of interface with the dead in a way that most other species don't. So the big question is, well, why do, and there's not a clear answer at this point, but why do crows mourn the dead? Why do they have these things that appear to be similar to funerals? Well, I think I read once that they're studying, you know, how that crow died so they don't, the same thing doesn't happen to them. Like sort of like little forensic scientists yeah. examining the clues. So I don't know if that would explain everything, but that seems to be one possible explanation. Yeah. I mean, it could be, it could certainly be grieving. I like that idea of, you know, surveying the surroundings. It seems, seems to sync up with the fact that if there is a crow that gets shot or uh, attacked by, say, a harrier, which is type of hawk, and doesn't get killed by that, you know, the hunter, the whatever, if it's human or a raptor or a cat, uh, if it doesn't get killed, then it goes back and it tells all of its uh, comrades like, hey, something really nasty happened here. And crows will actively change their um, uh, their flight patterns. So they make these daily migra- migrations, particularly in the winter, from where they roost to where they feed. And they will fly like a couple miles out of their way to avoid a spot where it's they've either witnessed something really bad happen or it's been communicated to them by another crow that something really bad has happened there. And so I think that probably syncs up with, you know, crows are active learners about their environment. They do a lot of behaviors that for us, we look at it and we're like, they are curious about their world. They're trying to figure it out. And so if they see a bird that is dead, then they would, you know, try and puzzle out what happened to it. There could be something, you know, if they have social hierarchies and not all of the crows in a territory are breeding. And so part of it might be like, well, hey, who is who's dead? Who's laying on the ground? Maybe it's, you know, right. a family Re- member sort of reconfiguring their hierarchy. Yeah, maybe it's an alpha. Right. Yeah. 
I don't know. I mean, it's, yeah, potentially all three wrapped up. I think it's probably primarily around assessing threat level in the area and getting a sense of what's going on. My, I, I don't understand why this isn't happening. The uh, Belyev, the Russian uh, behavioral ecologist, he was breeding docile foxes. And so he would stick his hand in a cage. And if there was an aggressive interaction, he would pull him out of the breeding pool. And I think what we should do with crows is selectively breed crows or dolphins or chimpanzees or whatever for extreme intelligence and language skills so that we can not just study them now but in the future we could just ask them (laughs) or have them do things for us (laughs) yeah ride on turtles and get us food yeah that's a great idea thank you thank you I'm seeing that as a personal challenge. I'll start doing that. <laughs> cool. That's with my son. We're going to start. Yeah, I want a million dollar grant so I can start the be- Professor Uwigi, yeah, behavioral studies for smart things. <laughs> <laughs> well, I do think there's something com- compelling about the idea that there's some kind of grieving and mourning going on. You know, that, that they're social animals and that this was a member of their community that is now gone and there's sort of a hole in their social fabric that they have to at least <clears throat> take in. And adjust for yeah i mean i i think there's maybe a compelling argument for having having some sort of grieving process i think you would only be able to grieve if you were able if you had uh what's called theory of mind right which is essentially a way of saying empathy like you can see the world through another individual's eyes and so you can imagine an experience outside of your own and there are very, very few animals that have theory of mind. One good predictor of an animal for having theory of mind is the ability or behaviors that look like deception. And I've watched this behavior. It's pretty cool. I've seen it with squirrels. I've seen it with crows, uh, which is they cache food. If you know a crow has a bunch of food on the market, like meat and bread and nuts, it will eat the meat and the things that spoil first, which is kind of cool. And then it'll cache the things that are like the non-perishables. Longer lasting. Yeah. Have a better shelf. Yeah. And, you know, crows are social animals and they're, I, I was trying to look up population densities of crows and it, I only found one out in California where in the breeding season for the California lease turn, the population density of crows spikes because they go after the eggs primarily. And so they'll shift their diet and the population density gets up to 40 crows per uh, square kil- kilometer, which is a pretty small area to have 40 oh. crows. So if you're, you know, one of 40 crows and you find some food and you can't eat it right then, but you're going to cache it or store it so you can eat it later, you have 40 pairs of eyes that are going to be watching you that can steal your food. And so one of the... 39, technically. Yeah, 39. There you go. Uh, well, I actually, I, I rounded down. So I think it's like 41.6 <laughs> per kilometer. 41. So. Um, <laughs> Got yeah. Um, but yeah, so they'll they'll false cash the food items. And so basically what it is, is they'll pretend to bury something and then they'll fly off or they'll actually bury it and then they'll come back and they'll pick it up and they'll fly off and bury it somewhere else. But if you're another crow and you're in the area and you see, you know, your neighbor bury some food and you're like, you wait until they leave and then you fly down and you go and you look at the cache and there's nothing there. 
what do you think? You're like, this other crow sucks, <laughs> right? It's like terrible at caching food. <laughs> There's nothing here. And so you're going to not waste your time cash or stealing out of Follow this other. Crow yeah. Back to what I was saying earlier. If you're, if you're deceiving your neighbors, you have to understand that they can watch you in the same way that you can watch them. Right. So you know that those other birds know things about their environment. And so you're projecting your own consciousness onto them. This is fascinating, but a little sad that that one of the main indications, the main signs of intelligence <laughs> is that we're our ability to lie yeah. and deceive. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I just want to make sure it's not the only way to be intelligent. Yeah. It's really cool. I mean, this was like see one of the first things with my the tangled we web we weave. <laughs> yeah. This is one of the first like advanced behaviors that I was really excited about in my son was when he started to lie. Like we would ask him a question. This is, you know, he was like, uh, he has theory of mind. He has theory of mind. He was like two years old. And I'd ask him like, Hey, do you know what color this is? And he would go, bougie, bougie, bougie. And he would just like mumble something. And he was like pretending to say <laughs> something. Cause he like wanted to have an answer, but then he couldn't. And then whatever you said, he'd be like, yeah, that's what I said. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. I do that sometimes when I can't remember someone's name. I'll just kind of mumble. Hey, how's it going? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Because <laughs> I have theory of mind. Yeah. In the same way a two-year-old like does. Like a two-year-old or a crow. Yeah. A cash and crow. And I think they also might potentially be mourning their own, you know, their own change. If it's a neighbor or somebody who would, who would capitulate to them, help groom them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> now gone from their flock. So maybe <laughs> theory of their own mind. Their circumstances have changed. They're taking it in. Oh, no. Yeah. Oh, Auntie Mabel, she used to be so good at preening. <laughs> she used to, she was such a good preener. Yeah. Now, who's going to preen me? Yeah. You know, kind of just be struck silent by that idea. Like, who is going to preen me now? I'm pretty sure that's not what's happening. Yeah. But. Well, it's, you know, we have the two theories of mine is one, it's either you're deceptive or two, you're selfish. And you're like, oh, damn, that person was really helpful. <laughs> <laughs> the two sides of intelligence. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, what else should we, we, do we have any other fun facts about crows or? Do you know where the, well, I, uh, do you know the story of, of Apollo and the crows? This is one of the many myth mythological stories, but apparently the Greek word for crow comes from the mistress, mistress of Apollo. Apollo, the sun god, yeah, had a, a human mistress who spurned him in favor of another mortal. Mm. And so she didn't want to be married to a god. She was she was in love with another mortal, and she was like, "No thanks." Apparently, it's one of the first cases of of someone being glorified for marrying beneath their rank. She didn't want to marry up to a god. Mm. She was just fine with a a commoner. The animal who sort of told this to Apollo was a, a crow, who at the time was completely white, and he got so angry he sort of blasted the crow, huh. made it turn black. So, what was the name of the, of the crow? The name of the crow is the name of the Apollo's mistress, Coronis. Mm. Corone, I think it is in Greek, comes from the name of Apollo's mistress, Corone. So it was linked somehow. I mean, I guess that wasn't so much deception. That was honesty. But it was kind of deception because the mistress, I think, had told Apollo that she would be with him and then she sort of ditched him. And she didn't get blasted herself, so she was successful at deceiving. Yeah, interesting. Which is not easy to do with a god. The gods are pretty yeah. powerful. Yeah, and the other set, the other um, legend is, it really does tie into this deception idea about the crows was that Apollo had sent a, a a crow out to you to get water for him, and instead the crow stopped by this fig tree that was um, filled with delicious figs that were not quite ripe. And so the crow just stayed there until the figs got ripe, and it took a long time to fill this errand. Eventually, um, 
The crow realized it was going to be late and in trouble with Apollo. So the crow grabbed, ate all the figs and grabbed the snake and took it back to Apollo and said, oh, there's this water snake here. And this is why, this is why it was late. But Apollo saw right through that and took the crow and flung him into the sky <laughs> to be a constellation forevermore. You know, it doesn't pay to be a messenger or a liar with Apollo, I guess, one of the mottos there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think the lesson from all of Greek mythology was at all costs, avoid the gods. <laughs> uh, final piece of that. So apparently a cu- there's a cup that's sort of part of the constellation near near the crow. and But the crow, you know, is it's eternally in the sky, can never qu- quite reach the cup. So it's eternally thirsty, condemned mm. to be forever thirsty because he left Apollo thirsty. Yeah. Interesting. That's kind of human retribution. Yeah. For uh, being tricked by crow. A theme we probably have have still today with farmers shooting the crows, eating their corn. Yeah. It, you know, it's interesting. And there are like there's Aesop's fable about the crows filling up the container with food at the bottom of it and then floating on a little bit of water. And then the crows come and they drop stones in so that the water rises up drop to the stones top. And, and they fill can, it up. Yeah. And so there's this cool fable about crow behavior and crows actually will do that. So in experimental settings and then with what you were just talking about of, you know, sitting there waiting for these figs to ripen. There is another study. This is not with American crows, but with uh, carrion crows where researchers were testing for delayed gratification. And so what they would do is they would hold out. They had all these different captive crows and they would figure out what their favorite types of food were. Yeah, so they uh, so the researchers would hold out their hand with a favorite piece of their food, but then they would also hold out another uh, snack. And so they had this option and the crows could either wait like they could go for the second choice and they could get it immediately or they could choose the preferred food, but they would have to wait for it. Um, And so they were looking to can crows recognize or can they delay their gratification, right? Most things would, if they can't have immediate access to something. Carrying crows. Yeah. On, you know, there's that famous experiment with humans where they have... The marshmallow <laughs> test. Yeah, exactly. Yes. Um, and so it seems like... The delicious marshmallow. Yeah. So the crows do about the same, I guess, as, <laughs> you know, two-year-olds. Yeah. But so it's kind of cool There's that you have cool these... Te- the marshmallow test, as far as I understand. Oh, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, it's cool that you have these uh, uh, experiments that on some level model these uh, mythological understandings or behaviors of, yeah, crows. What were you going to say? Yeah, apparently the marshmallow test, what I was going to say is a bit cruel. They, they charted how all these children did with the marshmallow test. Could they wait? I think the test was if they waited a minute looking at a marshmallow, then they would get two marshmallows. But if they couldn't handle it, they'd just grab the marshmallow. They would only yeah. get one. And then they charted their like success, whatever that means later in life. And there was like a strong correlation between those who could wait for the second marshmallow who achieved their goals later yeah. in life. <laughs> yeah. But it seems cruel to track them such way. Maybe they did that with the crows as well. Yeah. I, I, I feel like we've, yeah, sort of run through crow life on some level. And I want to talk about our major fact. Um, and so our major fact for the crows is these communal winter roosts. Yeah, this is something that I first discovered. It's one of these things where once you discover it, you're like, how how did I never notice this before? And how does, you know, because I'll describe it in a second, but like you can experience this in a downtown area and there are hundreds to thousands of people driving by 
and they have no idea that this is going on. You're like, how are you they just don't, missing not this? Seeing it. Yeah, that's right there. Yeah, so, how can you not see that? So uh, we went out for the Christmas bird count, and we were counting the winter roost for crows. Do you, so do you want to ex- describe your experience of, yeah, maybe what the winter roost was and what the experience was kind of tracking it down? Right, and I have a, a story from my past about this as well, but I'll, I'll talk about so. And hopefully a jingle. Yeah, we went out with, um, <laughs> I, should, I, I think... We could maybe tie it in the crow's feet snack too. You could eat them. The best time to eat them is when you're watching the crow's yeah. roost, maybe. For extra power. So let's see. The other day, yeah, we were going out and I was with my son, who's 10, and he's very interested in um, birds. And you, I think, had called us and told us you had found the crows in one place, potentially. and But you wanted us to see if we found the crows somewhere else. And it was snowing. There was maybe like two or three inches of snow on the ground. And then all of a sudden, as we were driving towards you, we saw masses of crows gathered in trees and snow on the way to you. And you came to us and just crows were flying in from all directions. I don't know. It felt, it felt like we saw probably 5,000 crows slowly gathering in, many of them sort of just sitting in this field or sitting in, sitting in trees and slowly gathering, coming from all directions, apparently, to roost communally at night. That was my experience. What was yours? Yeah. I, so... Uh... When I first discovered this, uh, I was working at this middle school in South Burlington, probably about four miles away. And uh, so I was biking there and then I was biking back home every day right around like three o'clock. And this was in the the spring semester. So like January, I think I started in January. And when I would bike back home around three, between three and four, I noticed all these crows that were flying overhead and they were all flying towards the same direction. And this happened day after day. And so I didn't have a car at the time. So my roommate, I got back home and I was like, all right, we're going on a crow safari. I don't know what's going on, but we're going to figure it out. (laughs) And uh, so we just got in a car and we just drove over to the area where I saw them around three. And then we just waited and they showed up and they were all flying in the same direction. And so we just like followed them and we were like, you know, you get on one. Follow that crow. Yes. Yeah, so, uh, so you can't drive as the crow flies. So we would get on one road and then we would kind of lose them. And we'd have to circle back around and it was totally thrilling. But yeah, there's, there are these winter crow roosts and the largest one is in Canada and it's 200,000 birds that every night migrate into the city and will sleep there. And then in the morning migrate back out to foraging sites so the crow safari, what we were doing as we were driving around, we would see some birds, you know, we're on Lake Champlain. So the lake is to the west of us. Uh, but we would see birds flying in from Addison County coming north from uh, like the Milton area, which is up to the north of us, flying south towards Burlington, and then also coming in from the east. So birds were coming from basically all directions, converging on the city. And so wherever you stood on the periphery, or perimeter of the city, you could just wait and right around an hour or so before sunset, you would start to see crows flying in. You can just track them down. And as they're flying in, they have these different staging areas. So the another after uh, initially finding out about this, uh, I was teaching at Sterling College, which is out in the Northeast Kingdom of Vermont. And it's about an hour or so drive. And I would get to about Stowe, which is 30 miles from Burlington, and I would start to see crows right around 3 or 4 o'clock that were flying in the direction of Burlington. And from Stowe going all the way to Burlington, I would see this repeated pattern of crows flying in this direction. 
And so I would surmise that those crows are flying the 30 or so miles into Burlington to roost at night. And so as these crows from Stowe, from wherever, are flying in, they'll have these little staging areas where they'll all hang out and they'll wait for their friends and neighbors to show up and then they'll get a flock of 50 and they'll fly to the next staging area and then a flock of 300 will fly and they'll move closer and closer into the city. So I think you came from down south, I came from the north, and I found a little staging area right next to my house, and you found one a little bit to the south, and then those two uh, groups of birds, mine was probably about 1,000, 1,500, those two groups converged. It was amazing. I mean, it's it's like this total yeah, riotous experience. It's a wonder of the world. My, my historical story of it, my sister was coming to visit uh, shortly after we moved to Vermont, and she was trying to get away from her hectic, you know, city life, more or less. And uh, she was looking forward to the peace and quiet of Vermont. But it so happened where we lived was right by sort of a, a lit woodlot. And the crow roost was there the two nights that she stayed with me. And so they were just raucously loud um, in the morning when she was trying to sleep. <laughs> yeah. She has this vision of Vermont as just being full of crows, like thousands of crows everywhere. But it was just because. And at the time I had read that they um, tended to prefer areas that were lit up because maybe it gave them a little... Protection, extra protection from owls in addition to being this large you know, group with 5,000 pairs of eyes. Yeah. But it was a, a wonder to see that. That was actually going on right next to where we were living for several nights that winter. Yeah, it's cool. So, yeah, so, and like you mentioned, for several nights, and it, it kind of bounces around over the course of a winter. So the uh, here in Vermont, I don't want to generalize to all different crow roosts, but here in Vermont... This is sort of a general trend across their range. These crow roosts have become increasingly urban. And so a lot of these smaller roosts of like 50 to a few hundred birds have gotten subsumed as those smaller crow roosts have uh, joined up with other larger crow roosts in increasingly urban areas. And so the crow roost in Vermont, I've been tracking the one in Burlington for the last 12 years or so since I moved here in 2008, or probably the last 10 years or so since I first found it. And yeah, so it seems like it's gotten bigger and bigger over those those years. But yeah, so probably starting like the 1950s or 1960s, the crow roosts across the country have gotten larger and larger. Here in the Burlington roost, it starts around early October, where you start to see groups in the hundreds roosting in the city and then it'll last until march and kind of taper into april right around the breeding season when it it breaks up and it's not every crow there are some mated pairs so crows are uh, at least socially if not sexually monogamous they some older mated pairs will stay on their nesting territory through the winter but most crows are going into these roosts in an area yeah, so you, you mentioned lights for predator deterrence. They tend to choose places that are that have higher levels of disturbance, so increased car traffic, increased ambient light, and they also like conifers, which potentially are blocking the wind. If you look at thermal imagery of crows in the crow roost, the 
and it turns out that the older individuals, the alphas and the, the flocks, tend to be concentrated on the interior of the flocks. And if you look at the thermal imagery, oh, it's even warmer. Presumably. Yeah, the ones, yeah, <laughs> the ones in the the middle of the the big flocks, and they're not huddled side by side, so it's kind of interesting. But if you have, you know, ten thousand or two hundred thousand crows, there are enough of them that they're going to be blocking wind uh, and protecting the ones on the interior and creating a microclimate. Uh, but the ones on the interior, they're just losing heat through their eyes and their mouths. And if you look at the ones on the exterior they're like their bodies are losing heat kind of all over it's getting sucked out everywhere yeah but yeah so so that's the big the big question is well why are they doing this and predator avoidance is the one that i hear the most often but there's actually not any direct evidence that this is the case i mean it's it's like pretty hard to determine if predator avoidance is the reason you can do something with heat benefits pretty easily you can just put a crow by itself in the woods and measure its heat there and then put one in a roost and see the benefits (laughs) but yeah predator avoidance is pretty hard to measure yeah so any other ideas of why they might be doing this i mean it's presumably there's some sort of informational exchange that might go on right that they're gathering together socially exchanging stories tidbits about where to find food the next day or where might be dangerous as with those detective funerals that they have yeah i would think that would be one possibility, maybe just to intimidate humans, you know, like the birds. Maybe they've seen the movie The Birds and they just want to <laughs> display their awesome power, frighten us into submission. They're so enamored by cities that they're trying theory. to, yeah, oust <laughs> the humans by their ominous presence. Maybe they've heard of things like, you know, mobs, the power of the mob, and they're just sort of practicing that out before they their eventual takeover. Yeah, one I think that's as good an idea as any. <laughs> I don't know, though. There, I'm sure there are theories that I haven't mentioned. What have I left out? Well, the first one is really good about information sharing. With language, I mentioned at the beginning that they have 250 plus different vocalizations that they can make. They have different dialects. So you could think of it more as like regional accents. Uh, it's not that, you know, they can't understand each other if you take a crow from Florida and put it in Alaska, but they have like sort of higher pitches or lower pitches or yeah. So would gathering together sort of like help dampen the effects of that? Like keep the, keep their languages from diverging too much, like make sure they have sort of a common. Well, yeah, I mean, the, the regional dialects are, are over pretty broad geographic range. So it's not city to city or county to county. So it might not help so much with that, but they have really complex language. There was a study out of University of Washington, and uh, this is with Kaylee Swift's advisor. I can't remember. John something. I'll link to it in the show notes. Bad form. (laughs) Sorry. Can't remember. But they did this research project where they would put on masks and then harass uh, crows. And what they wanted to see is could crows communicate to other crows that didn't see the event happen say they climb up to the nest or they they do some other sort of aggressive act towards crows and could those crows communicate what that person looked like to crows that didn't witness the event was this one with presidential masks they use like old presidents yeah nixon i think and was that the one yeah uh there's uh (laughs) pbs nature easy target everyone knows they hate nixon (laughs) yeah um pbs nature had a 
episode about this years and years ago and they didn't have nixon masks on that so i don't know if that's like an apocryphal story or, or not maybe they use the mask of like a rival researcher you know, so that, <laughs> that crows would just hate hate her or him yeah who's i don't know whoever she or he went who the rival i don't follow <laughs> football but whoever the huskies Fair rivals minded. would be all oh, right yeah. maybe the oregon ducks but it turns out that they they can. And not only could they communicate to their neighbors, but they could communicate to their offspring who then potentially up to like a year later would encounter that masked person, that face in a different location wow. and respond in an aggressive uh, manner. So, I mean, it, it demonstrates the ability to describe nuance of you know, facial characteristics of a human, like a non-related species, which is crazy. So then if you, you know, you're like, all right, well, crows can communicate very complex ideas to each other about potential threats. They must be able to do the same thing about potential benefits. And so one idea is that in these crow roosts, they're sharing a bunch of information. They're coming from all over the place, flying into the roost. And what kind of seems like happens, so if you get there, in the afternoon, it's like really, really loud and everybody's squawking and making, you know, ruckus. And then right after dusk, when it starts to get uh, like really pretty dark, there's this moment where all the crows get totally silent and then they take off and they fly to their final roosting site. It's so it's like this really, really eerie sound. Wow. And then when they find that spot where they're going to roost throughout the whole night, they're you know, flapping their wings and there's like a caw here and like grunting and whatever noises from the roost, but it's generally, you know, quietish. But in those early parts of the night, they when they're all first gathering for the evening, they're communicating a ton of information. And it also seems like there are scouts that kind of come off of the roost that are trying to say, this is where we should sleep tonight. You know, and, and we talked, said that the roost moves throughout the course of the winter from spot to spot but yeah so every night it's a little bit unpredictable are they going to nest or roost on this block are they going to be a few blocks away a mile away and it seems like you know individuals are flying out and trying to say hey i found a really good spot to roost you guys should come here and if you know the roost chooses that direction you got to imagine that gets you a lot of like social cred and the same if you go and you're like, hey, I found these great eyeballs, <laughs> you know, on the side of the road. You guys should come check them out tomorrow. And then if some birds follow them tomorrow and find these great eyeballs, then it gives them social cred that they can eventually translate to finding a mate. I mentioned that, you know, mated pairs will often stay on their breeding ground or their nesting ground through the winter. And so the the roosts tend to be a little bit more skewed towards juveniles and unmated pairs. The single yeah. scene. Interesting because they also, crows, you know, are known for their deceptive powers. If they have a really good stash of eyeballs, they might want to not tell all the crows about yeah. it. But if they do tell, then they get this the street cred or the uh, tree cred or whatever. Yeah. And then find a mate, reproduce. So they have to know when to lie and when not to. It's a weird thing. If, if a crow finds like... For myself to my son. Yeah. <laughs> if a crow finds a boon, you know, something that <laughs> is, you know, too much for it to handle itself... Then when it finds it, it'll stand over whatever food source, a bag of chips, a dead deer, and it'll let out this cawing noise over and over again. And then it'll like attract in other crows 
And and so the, there's like all, all this, you know, strange social dynamics where they're trying to impress others, trying to show I can find the best food and I can share that food with others. Yeah. Again, it seems like it's largely for social. Or I share this with you. So share with me in the future. Kind of yeah, thing, exactly. So. I'm a contributing yeah. member. It's like when you have a dinner party, you know, you can't just go to other people's dinner parties and never. Host a dinner <laughs> yeah. Party. I've tried that. <laughs> yeah. Reciprocal altruism. Stop up. getting invited. <laughs> yeah yeah so not everybody is like super super stoked on crows roosting in you know these large large congregations so there are some strategies for trying to deter crows from roosting in urban areas did you do any research on and find any on these i think they um following the scarecrow model they started just hiring like interns to just get up in trees and just kind of make angry noises set off firecrackers Maybe I dreamed that. <laughs> I'm not sure how they deter it. <laughs> I mean, it, scarecrows are famously ineffective, right, in fields. The crows see right through that. Yeah. So how are you going to stop 5,000 crows from roosting where they want to? It might be difficult. Well, firecrackers kind of gets at one what of do them. They do? Lasers. So uh, you could go to, you know, some disco uh, uh, and get their, their light show and just put them up in the roost. And then it... Or just have a bunch of kids open up a laser tag type thing. <laughs> yeah. Um, or you think they're going to roost. Like a free laser tag. You can harass them that way. But uh, actually, your idea of having the interns climb the trees and just be really aggressive towards them would be really effective. Because <laughs> we talked about earlier where you know over the funerals like if they see a dead bird and if they know how that bird died and it was like getting shot by a farmer or getting attacked by a falconer you know that sends their harrier their whatever hawk after crows and then releases that crow then they know that's a dangerous place and they'll avoid it and so actually one of the uh, effective <laughs> ways of doing this, or some researchers uh, were experimenting with what's the most effective way of uh, deterring species from from roosting at these sites over and over again. And so they took a corpse of a uh, crow and they shot it over a like a or they shot a rope. <laughs> well, they, no, no, no. They, sorry. They, they shot a rope over a tree limb and then they hung this corpse oh. up and. Uh, and then oh, played God, a bunch of distress heart. calls and had lasers and stuff. So it just seemed like this like crazy event that had happened there. You... And it, it turns out that those <laughs> oh, are like more effective than just the distress calls or just the laser shows. Um, but having some sort of the complete visceral, real threat that the crows Corks. can be uh, can observe heads and then communicate pike. that. Yeah, heads on a pike. So those are, are probably the more effective way. Yeah. Out west, there's a, a guy who's a falconer that's actually been brought in to move crow yeah, I was going to say, this seems like a boon for the falconry community. They could just hang out, since their falcons out. Yeah. Gather around. I mean, is the idea with the, preventing the crow roost that they are pooping everywhere and it's causing waste or just the noise is bothering people? Or what's the objection to the crows? Because they're also pretty cool to observe. They're super cool. Yeah. Brought to life. But they're, I don't think this, but they're super annoying for some people. And then, yeah, like they're, you know, in an urban area, we have all these people parked under streetlights and under street trees. And then they come out in the morning and their cars are just covered in poop. can be, you know. (laughs) I guess that can be a bit of a doubt. Yeah. It's like an homage. Yeah. (laughs) You were there right in the middle of it. Yeah. 
Well, I did want to touch upon this um, before we leave that, you know, a lot of what I was reading about crows was this sort of human ambivalence towards crows where they're sort of respected as tricksters, but there's this sort of like hostility, sort of the same way with wolves that humans sometimes have, I guess, because crows are eating, <laughs> eating farmers crops yeah. where they'll just go on these shooting rampages, you know, and there was sort of various laws that permitted people to shoot crows or encouraged them to do so in our nation's history. I didn't know what the status was now on, is it legal to shoot crows? Yeah, um, they are protected under the Migratory Bird Treaty Act, so you can't raise them as pets, but they are exceptions for certain species that would normally be protected under that. Crows, yeah, there's a hunting season for crows in most states. I don't know if all states have crow hunting seasons, so people will hunt them. It's one of these things where, yeah, with all these, you know, the old bounties that were on, on the predators and... People were, you know, thinking they were A, killing their livestock or, yeah, just B, detrimental or hunting deer or something like that. And and so there are these bounties that were placed on all these top predators. Maybe with some of them, yeah, there's a certain element of truth to their negative impact on things that humans want. But with crows, they scavenge for crops, but in the winter. So they're mostly like foraging in farm fields for corn and pumpkins that didn't get harvested. But what they're really doing in those farm fields through the summer months is they're foraging for insects that are pests. So their net benefit to agriculture is positive. (laughs) Um, They're decomposers, so they're cleaning up carcasses. They're not hunting, you know, things that are that humans are also trying to hunt. So it, it yeah, it's one of these things where they have a really bad reputation. It's entirely unfounded uh (laughs) and really unfortunate it's fortunate that they're so resilient that it didn't seem like our ambivalence or active animosity towards them has really negatively impacted them well maybe our listeners or or those who followed the path of the crow at your outdoor school will at least be more understanding of what they're really doing out there so in the future stop shooting them indiscriminately shoot them discriminately (laughs) that's right no wait don't shoot them (laughs) I get confused about yeah. the lessons Yeah, sometimes. shoot them with a camera. That's a weird way of saying it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Cool. Well, I, I think that's probably long enough. I am totally obsessed with crows. Actually, every species we're going to profile on here, I'm, I'm pretty stoked. The next one, we're going to look at peregrine falcons. I think maybe we'll do another one, but probably peregrine falcons. But yeah, crows are the best. Uh, so yeah, thanks for listening to me ramble for... Long Thanks time. for share, sharing your knowledge, Teague. It's always a pleasure. Yeah. And I look forward to our next species. Yeah, Uncle Corvus, I wish you the best of, of luck being, you know, in the plague uh, doctor industry. You know, most, most plague doctors don't make it through the first year. <laughs> That's so. what I've heard. <laughs> Hoping to be an exception. <laughs> Hoping all those those play. When I was a child, you know, play to be play doctor, That those games that I played as a child. Yeah, and as we found out, if that doesn't work out, through this year then plague. crow's feet. The uh, jelly alternative to <laughs> Sour Patch Kids. <laughs> Just don't make it licorice flavored. No, we won't. No, of course not. Berries. All right. <laughs> good. Berry cool. flavored. All right. Well, I'll see you. Uh, flavored very good. Yeah. And the next one when we talk see about paradise. All right. Peace. Bye. I'm looking forward to it. Take care. Bye. Hopefully by the end of this episode, you've come to see the American crow as a deeply fascinating and curious bird, not some harbinger of evil to come. Coming up in the next episode, we'll profile a species that's well-deserving of a most terrifying reputation, the peregrine falcon. 
Until then, we'd greatly appreciate you dropping a five-star review for us. It helps us get the word out there on iTunes and other podcast apps. After that, head on over to crowspath.org podcast to get in touch with us through the Woodland Message Board. Here you can ask us questions, suggest topics, and even post fake ads that we'll read on the air. You'll also find archived episodes, online natural history programs, and lots of other content. All right, naturalists, that's it for now. We'll see you next time on The Single Acorn.